There are a lot of ways to make a movie that's gripping. And one of the ways that has always fascinated me the most is at the heart of the film I'm talking about with my guest today, John Madden. I'm George Edelman, editor-in-chief at No Film School and host of the No Film School podcast. And John Madden is a very accomplished director. You're certainly familiar with his work, whether it's Shakespeare in Love, Best Exotic Marigold, among many others dating back to the 80s on television. Even did something that had quite an impact on me that I didn't realize until we started talking really was the Star Wars radio dramas from the 80s that NPR did. He directed all those. So his background in theater, radio, et cetera, he'll tell you about how all of that led him to cinema and his insane success there. But back to this movie, Operation Mincemeat, which comes out on Netflix and in select theaters. And the film is available on Netflix now, so you can go watch it. But one of the things we really get into, besides for how John built his career, is how this story works around the kind of tension that it creates. Just for a little background, Operation Mincemeat was a real thing that happened in World War II. It's a fascinatingly strange thing. It's something that people have obsessed over and spun yarns about or kind of riffed on since then, including a number of movies you've probably seen, including a movie about it by based on a book that one of the men involved in it wrote. But the key is you don't want to know too much going in and you don't need to know too much going into this interview, just that it was a plan, a sort of a Trojan horse style ruse put on by the British in 1943 during World War II. And the rest of it, I think you just have to let happen, but uh, (laughs) you'll, you'll find out more as you listen to the interview and hopefully afterwards watch the film. But you can definitely listen to this before because we're not spoiling anything. And I hope that in listening to it before, it makes you more aware of some of the things that people can do in a very limited setting. Don't need a lot of set pieces or a lot of bells and whistles to create something that really grabs audiences. So here we go. Thank you so much for being here. It's exciting to talk about this project. It's, of course, very exciting to have you. You've had a long and incredible career as a director. So I guess I I like to start with this. What sort of began your first steps or, or entree into the film industry as a film director? What was the beginning for you with that? What what started the path for you? I came at at, at film directing sort of had to understand a little bit about how the, the climate worked in the UK. But the simple answer is that I actually came into it initially via theatre. You know, that I was involved in theatre at university. I ran a, a Shakespeare company after university and, uh, you know, which stood me in good stead later. Uh, initially, I came to America, strangely enough, to work on a radio drama project and I found out from there and became a theater director in the U.S. And then went back to the U.K. and uh, worked in British television, uh, really, as a director. I mean, I was actually splitting between the two. I was doing theater over here and getting my feet wet in terms of making films for British television, which really functioned as the independent film industry at that time. 
most of the kind of key directors were working in that space because and that was were, just because I'm I'm pretty familiar. I've been looking at and familiar with your resume. So was yeah. the the radio you came out here to do was the yeah. Star Wars radio drama? No, I no no no. I was actually uh, I was working the BBC in radio drama, and they were looking for some kind of guidance, I suppose, in America uh, to set up uh, a radio drama outfit, um, which actually was called Earplay. It was a radio drama project that was funded out of the University of Wisconsin by a former radio actor who was a professor of communications at the University of Wisconsin. And they got money from PBS to set up a, you know, see if we could revive radio drama as a serious medium in the US, because obviously when radio went went commercial largely, Mm -hmm. uh, it became wall-to-wall music essentially. And, you know, the glory days of Orson Welles and so forth sort of disappeared. And there was some sort of, you know, genre elements, but no serious attempt to kind of take advantage of serious writing in a radio sense. So I came over to work on that project. And it worked to some extent to revive some of it because it absolutely did. No, no, no. We had we had some pretty serious writers working for us. So David Mamet, uh, Edward Albee, Arthur Copit, who wrote a play that I directed for Earplay that then went on to have a stage life and actually a television life as well, called Wings. So uh, Sam Shepard. I mean, there were a lot of people who who actually wrote for that project uh, because it turns out, you know. Not surprisingly, dramatists like it because <laughs> it's not in the way. It's just words. Now, so visual, the, reason yeah. Star, the reason that Star Wars came about is because they uh, George Lucas had bequeathed the radio drama rights to USC in perpetuity, and then the idea actually came up. And I'm not going to remember the name of the key players here for a second. NPR. Uh, uh, yeah, well, it was NPR, but but they basically said, well, who do we go to to kind of deal with this? And the only people who were actually practicing radio drama at that sort of level was us. This <laughs> outfit called Earplay. So they approached us and a guy called Tom Vagley, who was my kind of collaborator and was a brilliant engineer. And we took that on and, and um, as you know, did not all at once, but all three films, versions of all three films with a guy called Brian Daly who wrote the scripts for that. And they were really expanded versions of the stories and included a lot of the cast and tons of special effects in the music and were quite a production. And you were a pretty young director in the context as well, right? It was quite a production, yeah. We had access to the the original score and yeah, Ben Burt's um, sound library. And it was all through... Uh, Lucasfilm, so it it had their their blessing, and yeah, uh, Brian Daly, who did the dramatizations with us, was you know had a gig with Lucasfilm writing the novelizations of the scripts uh, of the original film scripts as well. I feel like that, and then going back and doing television that included Sherlock Holmes and stuff. You were stepping into some very very big projects very early, but I'm curious, you know, your development as a director going from theater to something like radio where you get, where you lose all the visual elements, how you felt like that sort of, and and working with some of those greatest writers too. Yeah, it's true, but there's more of an overlap, you know, with uh, radio and film actually than you would necessarily expect. Because I think 
for example, the rhythm of the way a story unfolds uh, is something that's absolutely crucial to an effective radio drama. And, you know, obviously film is a visual medium, but in terms of the, the, the grammar of production, in terms of how you tell a story, how you manage a story, it's extraordinary how crucial uh, sound and rhythm and the relationship between uh, silence and noise and so forth mm. are very, very central. And I find that actually even now when I'm working on a script, I tend to go through a kind of a, a sort of sound envelope uh, fairly mm. early on in terms of how the story actually works rhythmically because rhythm is the key to everything, I think, in, in cinematic storytelling. So I suppose that was always there in the background for me. But I started to, I mean, particularly growing up in the time that I was growing up uh, really or coming into the business, there was a, a huge sort of explosion of creativity, particularly in American cinema. And of course, there was a sort of counterbalancing kind of golden age in, in European cinema as well, which both influenced the British film scene. And, you know, I was working in a world where the writer had a kind of primacy in British yeah. television. That was true. You know, the, the, they were projects were very often evaluated on the strength of a script by some pretty serious writers. And so you had a kind of all of those elements coming together in one place. And that was really the kind of the launch pad for my generation or the generation just ahead of me, but of people. So, you know, Anthony Minghella and Danny Boyle and Roger Michelle and myself and all of those people. And the one just ahead of us, Stephen Frears, uh, Mike Newell and, uh, Right. Acted and all those people all came out of the television channel. I mean, they, we all came from the same place uh, as that, you know, the, the, the kind of cinematic aspects of what was going on started to expand. Because you've got to remember in, at that time in, in British television, almost all drama was on video. Yeah. It was multi-camera video shot in a studio with the exterior elements being what we used to call film inserts. <laughs> when, you know, when, when it, you know, in an Austin adaptation, they'd step out of the studio and, and mount a horse, which was shot on 16 mil film <laughs> until gradually, you know, some of the sort of heavyweight practitioners or the people who were, you know, at the top of their game, like Ken Loach and Stephen Frears and so forth, got to make full length versions of stories that Outside. were shot on 16 millimeter film. <laughs> <laughs> and in, in, in my case, that's true, you know, that, that my first, well, actually, I made a couple of feature films in America, but but uh, uh, the one that kind of put me on a particular trajectory was Mrs. Brown, which was originally made on 16mm film for the BBC as a, uh, what was called a screen one. They had two, two different strands, uh, screen one and screen two, which just meant one was destined for a bigger audience on BBC One, and the other was on a slightly smaller audience, a slightly more niche material on something called Screen Two. So that was a Screen One, and then that film was sort of snapped up, I suppose. There was just a point where they were beginning to consider whether there might be some possibility of limited release of those films in a theatrical context. And a couple, one, one that Stephen uh, Frears had done called The Snapper, had that came up through that route. And hmm. uh, and Harvey Weinstein that. at Miramax picked up um, 
picked up Mrs. Brown? Yeah, I think because, so, I mean, there's so many things I want to ask or dig into, and I definitely want to get into Operation Mincemeat specifically soon, yeah. but uh, <laughs> just talk, talking a little bit about background and specifically learning or cutting your teeth, so to speak, with various yeah. mediums or limitations Yeah, and, th- and learning that, you know, to put story first, script first, yes. sound yeah. first, before you yeah. have the power of, of shooting all kinds of things, because today... We have kind of this backwards ability, which is great in certain ways, but the tools to get almost any visual are readily yeah. available, right? Well, that's so, absolutely true. It's absolutely true. Yes. It, I mean, you could describe you as going backwards. You could say that's going forwards, really. But, but uh, no, it's absolutely true. In our, in our day, there was no way of having access to the materials you needed to make a film or to tell a, a story in film terms unless you went through the, just the beginning of a burgeoning renaissance in British film, independent British film, low budget, or through the television route. And so I suppose it's where, where your skill set comes from. It tends to be, I think, that, I mean, this is a ridiculous generalization because different people develop in different ways, but the primacy of, of character and of writing was held very, very highly in the world that I grew up in. I mean, I'm talking about I mean, grow up in, I mean, uh, developed in you yeah. know, when I started to work in this field as a living. And, and so those, those elements were ones that you were always looking for first to, to find or to develop in a project, not, not without there being a cinematic circumstance. Whereas over here, for example, the effect of this sort of extraordinary landscape that comprises the U.S., both urban landscape as well as, uh, you know, natural landscape, just gave you a different sort of portal into the storytelling. Yeah, and it was the sort of cross-fertilization of those things that, that actually made it exciting, really, because as, as the British film industry started to develop and take off, it became more significant over here in terms of its reach because of you know the mini majors and the development of that whole idea of small films that started with a very small budget but but managed to find much much larger audiences we still have a dedicated large audience here and and obviously there's one internationally though for specifically the style of smaller thing that's yes. coming from that same exact kind of I don't I don't know what to call it but that sort of original circle or pool mm-hmm. um, and mm-hmm. style. And so there's, there's an appetite for it because of its contrast and because yes. of its difference. And because there's a, always, people always, always talk about story and character first, mm-hmm. but they aren't necessarily doing it because they don't have to. Something about being forced to makes it a true priority, I think. Yes. Yes, I think that's probably right. That's so, probably right. So bringing us up to, you know, obviously relationship with Miramax, with, with, uh, with basically becoming these kinds of, you know, making many films, many of which are like major award-winning films, and, and the industry has changed a, a ton. <laughs> we could talk yeah. about all the ways it's changed, but we're here and it's, it's Operation Mincemeat, which is, which yeah. is an old story, a, a, a true story and a crazy one. Um, yeah. It has roots <laughs> in actual history. In cinema, of course, because yeah. it's been told, but also because of James Bond, <laughs> it's got the, another weird route. So, can yeah. you tell me how you came at this story with all of its 
uh, with the web of things that it, that it touches on and and how you yes. kind of broke it down. Well, uh, so the the key, the key the key entity here actually is Ben McIntyre's book, which was the basis for the film, which was called Operation Mincemeat. That in and of itself was a a retelling of a story of which there was an existing account, as you're aware, uh, written by you and Montague, who's one of the two uh, key planners of the operation, who sued sued in the sense of campaigned to be able to tell the story of that after the war ended, but got a lot of pushback from the intelligence community for certain reasons of certain sensitivities they didn't really want revealed and so forth. And so The Man Who Never Was, which is the title of that. Oh, thing, I that, forgot to mention Hitchcock weaved into all of this, but <laughs> that's right. Well, okay. yes. Continue. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, and anyway, then uh, that was made into a film, as you know, in 1956 called The Man Who Never Was, which was a spectacular work of fiction, of yes. course, because uh, partly understandable fiction, because you have to kind of shape the story to tell it cinematically, but most particularly because the thing that the intelligence services were very concerned about was the revelation as to whose body they used, which right. has become a kind of a conspiracy theory of sorts. And the reason Ben McIntyre undertook this partly because it is his sphere of, you know, his speciality is actually, uh, you know, espionage during the war years. And he's written a lot of books on that subject, but he had access to the files because they were declassified in, in 1996. And suddenly the whole yeah. reality of what went on in that in an unexpurgated form and particularly the uh, identity of the body. Isn't uh, it fascinating so- that all that time there were all these versions that people yes. were spinning out of the minimal amount of information we had? Totally. Totally. That's what it's all about. You know what's interesting about the whole project is that it's all about speculation even the, mm. the story itself is about that it's about right after what is espionage it's actually hunches and guesswork ah. and ah. speculation and the one thing that is guaranteed is that there is no certainty about anything it's <laughs> only a bet that you're making that something will work or that the the construction you're putting on it is valid or true and there's no better example of that than, as you say, people trying to figure out whose body was that. <laughs> and, uh, and even now, even now, though it's absolutely uh, you know uh, known and properly validated that it was Lindauer Michael, for example, you know, whose name now appears on Bill Martin's grave in Huelva, that is still, there's still conspiracies going on around that. I think people like the, the mystery. Yeah, they do. Of course they do. And, uh, you know, now conspiracy theories, of course, consume us in, <laughs> in, in, in a terrible way. Sphere, <laughs> in a terrible way. I mean, it's a blight, actually. It's a blight on, on modern experience. But very interesting. So, so it was Ben's book, which was a really an exhaustive opening up of the whole thing. And it is the most extraordinary idea and the most bizarre idea. You can't really quite believe that they pursued it to its logical conclusion. There's one thing I would just say here that I, you know, I, I, I would, in terms of talking about it, because people will now obviously be able to see it whenever they want on the uh, Netflix uh, platform, that I kind of speak about it guardedly because it's not a story whose outcome people have, uh, know about. Yes. And actually, it makes it a much more interesting experience as a film when you are not told what the outcome is. And so... And- 
Yes, uh, and I agree. I think that the less people know going in, the better. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly that. So, you know, in terms of talking about it, that's one thing I would say. But but it, it is true that, you know, it's a story that keeps you guessing that actually you find, really, is that what they did? And is that how that worked? And so forth. And and to me, apropos of the things that we were talking about earlier in this podcast, it pulls together a whole number of things that I was particularly interested in. So it's at some level, it's sort of procedural. Obviously, yeah. it's a procedural story, but only at one level. It's also about the business of writing, the business of storytelling. It has an emotional component that is quite, you know, braided into the story and certainly was in life. It's really, I suppose, if I were to characterize it simply, it's about people who get together to create a fiction and then become lost in the fiction that they've created. <laughs> uh, and then realize actually that they can't control the fiction that they've created either. And all of that rolls up into a sort of heightening sense of how, how huge the stakes are if this idea and goes wrong. It feels like something there's so much to talk about, but it feels like something that is such a natural fit for people who spend their lives telling stories. Whenever yes. filmmakers or creators get to tell one of these kinds of stories, they mm -hmm. get to bring a lot of their own experience about crafting narrative yeah. because yeah. it's about the craft of narrative. And people forget, we think of spy more now and espionage has, has morphed a little bit into action when its initial yeah. roots are more about that what I think in the Hitchcock sense always was like an ironic tension where like, well, so-and-so knows X, but, but the other person only knows Y, but then they That's know right. X, but who knows both things? And then the audience knows all things. And then like, and it keeps, it's a game that constantly advances. It a and, little it, and it also, that kind of storytelling is one that if you can get, you know, do your job right, then you engage the audience in that configuration that you're talking about where they're trying to figure out whether A plus B equals C or equals Z, you yeah. know, you just, uh, and I think that that's where things get very interesting in storytelling terms, rather than, <laughs> you know, the perfectly valid and in, in intensely gripping uh, sense of action unfolding. Because this film is mainly, it's framed by, you know, the, the action world that we're familiar with from World War II movies, which is, you know, bombs and bullets and, yeah, and blood and uh, and conflict, you know, raw conflict of of men. Uh, the highest stakes, one imaginable. The highest right? possible stakes, but actually, the story that we're telling is the one that's underground, many miles yeah. away, where <laughs> theories and ideas are being spun and developed. And also, this is a parenthesis, but also in a world where you're not familiar with from World War Two cinematic literature, which is you know. Mm. It, the 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 smoking ruins of London, uh, you know, after the Battle of Britain, and or you know the the shores of Normandy, or the Dunkirk uh, evacuation, or whatever these things are. This is a 1943. No bombs have dropped on London that year. Life is carrying on. People have eked out a different kind of way of enjoying themselves and living a kind of a normal life while the war goes on somewhere else. And in yeah. our particular case, those people are living in that world, but dedicating themselves to this extravagant fiction that is sort of <laughs> minutely worked out in this underground bunker, you know, which doesn't sound like a promising idea for a film, but 
But of course, I think it is once you start to explode that and really uh, take it apart. Well, it's dramatic. It has potential to be, when you play with that level of drama, the other kind of film history that comes to mind for me is, is the Lubitsch to be or not to be where there's mm-hmm. also World War II stakes, it's theatrical. And that one, it's used for comedic effect. But it's a mm-hmm. similar idea of using ideas and knowledge as a weapon interplay with, yeah. with, an, with a dangerous enemy. Um, yeah, and I think right. that, and it, it, uh, just, just like the Hitchcock versions, it veers on, um, it veers on suspense and comedy because it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's out of control. Well, um, it's true, and actually that's, that's kind of critical. It's one of the great attractions of this from my point of view because, you know, I like films of mixed tone because it, 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 you can wrong-foot an audience or you can you know, pull an audience into a tighter engagement with something because if they're laughing, they're immediately engaged, and if that yeah. laugh suddenly reverses on itself when you realize why they're laughing, then that's kind of really interesting. Hitchcock was, of course, a master of that, wasn't afraid of, you know, the really bad joke, the banana skin that goes under the plot at the wrong moment. And uh, yeah, you have a great cast for it. I want to ask you about working with, you know, you've you've worked with a lot of the great actors of, of times, but like this is, you know, bringing in Colin Firth, Matthew McFadden, who's who's incredible, but also, as we know, hilarious, if he yes. needs to be. Kelly McDonald. It's a lot of really talented people. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about working with actors? and act- Because that's certainly a strength you've had. And I don't know if there, you have specific advice or approaches or, you know, casting and things like no, that. I mean, I think, look, for this kind of project, we have an extraordinary reservoir of talent in the UK. There are people who grow up with a sense of this era, particularly already in their bones. I think, you know, one of the things that I pay enormous tribute to Michelle Ashford, who is American, who's written a, uh, you know, idiomatically very, very intuitive and nuanced version of the way people spoke and thought. Did you work with her at all to to achieve that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. That's, that must have been quite a, ch- quite a challenge well, to take she something. Was already, that- she was already on sound footing, but there were obviously occasions where we were, yeah, we were training versions of the script a lot of the time, uh, uh, only because I was giving her feedback on that, or that's a weird expression from our point of view, or whatever it may be. <laughs> but, um, but, but I think that's an answer, a partial answer to the question you just asked me, which is that if you've got a script that immediately comes off the page in a certain kind of a way, you're not, in an ideal world, going to have trouble attracting the actors you want, assuming they're available. Uh, And also about the subject matter. So I think that people did respond to this, uh, you know, strongly. And most of the people that I went to, you know, who were available, there weren't, I don't actually can't remember people saying no to it particularly, but they might have done for (laughs) one reason or another. Uh, but you know we have got such an amazing reservoir there and 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 i think that you know as a director you often tend to think when you when you're starting to think about a play or a film or something you feel like some level in your head you think well you've got to tell them exactly what to do otherwise they won't know but of course that's not the case mm. actors come with an extraordinary set of reactions to the materials a set of skills that you kind of go whoa i never realized <laughs> that thing could be as good as this, you know. I mean, it's a uh, perfect example of that is a guy called Paul Ritter, who is a, 
a name you probably wouldn't know. He plays Bentley Purchase, the improbably named Bentley Purchase, who's the coroner uh, who provides him with the body. He's a brilliant actor who disappears into every role he plays. Sadly, he died after we'd shot the film, so we actually are the, the last film he ever made. But you know, I remember when oh, he yeah, was he's first. he's excellent. He's been in he's, he's been fantastic. in many many things that I mean, people might people will recognize yeah. him immediately. Well, they yeah, would recognize ex- him. I, did, I mean, I didn't know he had the, passed away. That's yeah, he was a significant role in uh, Chernobyl, for example. Yes, you know the 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 guy who ran the plant. Uh, you know, it just morphs into whatever the plot requires, but. It was quite. He's got a lot of information to carry in the in our story, and I was just sitting there in absolute delight on the first day of shooting. It literally was the first thing we shot actually with him in the whole film, and just listening to the way they spin the words so they just take off into a realm of their own. I'm that's because I admire actors hugely. You know, I, that's a skill that people don't really understand. And you're working in the midst of it, exactly what they can do. Matthew and Colin in different ways are different examples of that. Well, all of them are, you know, Kelly, uh, Penelope Wilton is an absolute genius, really, who can do anything. (laughs) Um, It's the third time I've worked with her, so I I know whereof I speak. But I grew up watching her on stage anyway. So, no, I mean, that and Simon Russell Beale, I mean, you know, he's a major, major, major figure and uh, just uh, nails every single phrase that he says in such an amazingly resonant way. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the the part of the truth is that because your resume, also the quality of the story and the script that you're bringing, and and that the nature of the con of the content here, there's going to be a lot of people who want to be involved in it. But you know, sometimes you you write with people in mind, sometimes you don't. Yeah. In this situation, you've got historical figures, and you have, as you know, there's going to be a lot of people interested. As you were helping craft the script, did you have ideas? Because this is going to be so uh, actor forward. Did you have ideas or talks about who? Did. Yes. I mean, certainly Colin. I mean, you know, to be completely blunt, Colin and Matthew were both pretty installed in my head. We couldn't get yeah. Matthew because he was uh, obviously committed to succession, which whose third season, when they thought they were going to be shooting it, was a total clash with our film. Co- and Colin, COVID stuff at the same time, right? That was part uh, well, no, of the- actually, COVID. No, that was pre-COVID. In fact, they they just did got behind on their writing schedule, and suddenly, ah, okay, they pushed back by two months, and suddenly he was available. Ah. So uh, I, he got a, he got a phone call very quickly because I, I think, apart from his uncanny kind of uh, affinity with the role as an actor, he's also physically kind of perfect for it. I mean, he looks very very like Charles Chumley in terms of his height and the moustache and the sort of gangliness. But he's a proper sort of transforming actor, Matthew. Colin is somebody, obviously, I've known for a long time. He's a good friend of mine, and this seemed like such a perfect role for him. Initially, we were slightly hidebound by the idea that he was a little bit older than the character actually was. But the character, when you see pictures of the real Ewan Montague, you would have put him as older than Colin. <laughs> Just in terms of the way people... Behave yes. and look. You know, he was a pipe smoker, bald, tall, rangy. You know, he could have been anywhere between, you know, fifty-five and seventy. Really, that character. But so, you know, one throws those things aside. You'll get hung up actually on exactly what ages people are. So Colin seemed perfect to me. Kelly, likewise. Penelope, I'd always 
had her in my mind for Hester. Simon Russell Beale, likewise. Yeah, Paul Ritter didn't come to me initially just because I hadn't, he's so hard to place as an actor. You just think he's a fabulous actor. And when that idea came up from Gina J, the casting director, I kind of went, whoa, that's, that's a fantastic idea. Also, I need actually to hoist a flag for the casting director. Gina J cast this, and it's a very big cast. And she made me aware of people that I simply wouldn't have been aware of or couldn't have been aware of. So, for example, amazing actress called Gabrielle Creevy, who plays Linda Michael's sister in the film. She's a Welsh-based, uh, well, she's Welsh, um, and mm. she's based in Wales as an actor. Although I think she'll probably be spreading her wings beyond. <laughs> Wales uh, now, I'm, but you know, that's shoot, just fantastic. I'm curious, also, you know, it's interesting to note because, given where you started with radio and then with television, and like you said, VHS, but then doing a project like this, which for a lot of filmmakers who come came at a slightly later time than you, or at an earlier time, doing things that are you know a digital medium that's going yeah. up on a Netflix kind of platform and streaming would seem yeah. like oh, this is an adjustment for you. This is like. I assume somewhat like, oh yeah, I this is the form this is a format I'm familiar with. This is a workflow yes. I know. You know, it's, like so so does it feel kind of like <laughs> does it feel like, yes, I know how this works and it's no different? Or because for some people it's like there's a bemoaning of the changes of the digital mediums and of the that. I, I mean, I glossed over it, but you've seen massive changes in the way this industry works. It's true. And, it's true. I, I mean, this one actually is strangely, like literally sort of a balanced on the fulcrum of those two things because mm. it's a theatrical release everywhere else in the world except for the US. Oh, well, okay. Didn't America. know that. I'm, I'm glad you... Yeah, so, <laughs> so, so it's, it's already in theatrical release in Europe now. Uh, we opened there about three weeks ago, four weeks ago. And Oh, I wish so, I could fly and, and I want to go to Europe and see it in the theater then. <laughs> well, you can, see it, you can see it in the next week, actually, because it's a theatrical release in most of the major cities in the next week because uh -huh. uh, through um, Netflix have their own theatrical release yes. pattern, mainly in New York and LA, which is where I'm speaking from at the moment, New York. It's running in all the landmark theaters as well for the next week. So it can be seen in the cinema. But it, it's so it's strange. I'm literally on the cusp of you know, getting my head around the whole idea that actually this film will be you know, on demand from now on, on a digital platform, which of course has been a part of all of our lives for uh, the last five years and particularly the last three years, but more than that, really. It's never bothered me hugely. You know, you can't help but feel if you are a film director that there's no way you would rather the film be seen than in a darkened theater with a very large screen with a lot of other people watching with you. And that's because of the magic that happens when you experience something at the same time as a lot of the other people. There's a yes. sort of chemistry that happens in terms of the way you relate to the material you're watching. And that doesn't happen in a digital landscape. But, you know, this is not the way we consume, or the majority mm. of us consume a story now. Uh, I guess what's interesting to note is that when you, I, I, I also misspoke a little bit because when you did things like a Star Wars radio play or a BBC series about Sherlock Holmes or those earlier projects, they were kind of, they aired and, and maybe not again, right? <laughs> People experienced true. it and that was no, it, that's right? That's absolutely true. I mean, uh, Star Wars did, of course, find its way into yeah. permanent distribution fairly quickly, but no, that's true. 
once they were out, they were gone until you know the relevant uh, broadcaster decided to repeat them. But this and, is permanent. Uh, this is just sitting there <laughs> every day, yeah, every hour, waiting. Forever, just as this podcast will be for somebody who that wants to look true. for it sometime <laughs> hence. Um, I'm just looking at a note here from Esther. Oh, yes. It. Yes, we have to wrap up. Um, yes. Well, um, so I guess, you know, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. I know you've got a lot of these to do, and it's been a great conversation. Um, thank I'm excited you. for people to see this one. Thank you very much, George. It's great to speak to you. Likewise. Have a good okay. day. Thanks so much to John for coming on the podcast. Thanks everyone for listening. It's a treat to get somebody of John's stature on and to have him talk about his reflections on the industry and how it's changed, but also just how he approaches making movies. Be sure to check out a post we have on No Film School called How to Use Dramatic Irony in Film and TV with Examples. We'll throw a link in there in the description, in the show notes, because that's kind of what we're talking about here is dramatic irony and creating tension in your writing and in your story. And I think that's what makes Operation Mincemeat so fascinating as a source for stories, not just based on the actual event, but just a blooming of ideas that come out of that kind of situation. Um, So enjoy the film, enjoy the post, enjoy the podcast. Be sure to like, rate, and subscribe. Hey, we've had a lot of big directors on lately. We've been blessed. We had the Daniels from Everything Everywhere all at once in a very long episode, but an amazing episode in terms of how much we cover. And we also had Robert Eggers on a shorter episode where we talked about The Northman, which is another incredible film from this month. So be sure to go back through the catalog and see all the things that we've done lately. Thanks so much for listening.